0: Uh, It's a great book. I really like one, Samuel. Let's read. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first and then take whatever you want, the servant would then answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, Who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with men. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel, to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your family line and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done in Israel in your family line, there will never be an old man. Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar will be spared, only to blind your eyes with tears and to grieve your heart, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phineas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before my appointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a crust of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days the word of the Lord was rare; there were not many visions. One night Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. When the Lord then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, "Here I am." And he ran to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and laid down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. This kind of sounds like Arthur when we're trying to put him to bed. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli came to him and said, Samuel, my son, Samuel answered, Here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Bathsheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel.
1: Well, good morning. Thank you, John, for reading us uh, God's word so well. Uh, Will you join me as uh, as I lead us in prayer uh, before we look at this part of God's word? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts ready to respond to you according to your will. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began this uh, series on the book of 1 Samuel uh, under the title, Looking for a Leader, because this book of 1 Samuel is about leadership, and in particular the, the leadership of God's people, Israel. Now, the events of 2021 may... Have made us particularly aware of our leaders and of our expectation of leaders. What is it that we expect of our leaders? Would you say we have high expectations or low expectations? Uh, One thing I think you'd have to say is that we are all often very critical of our leaders. We're often sceptical, perhaps even cynical about them, about their capacity to to lead us well. Uh, We wonder whether they're just perhaps feathering their own nest or acting in their own interests And so you have to say, in a way, we have low expectations of our leaders. We're cynical and critical of them. Uh, You see this, in fact, expressed in our our democratic political system. I mean, democracy has built into it a low view of leadership. We we limit the power that any one individual can have. And we provide an an easy mechanism to get rid of leaders when we no longer want them. And democracy is great because of that. I mean, think about it. If we have a leader that we don't like or someone who goes bad, well, we can simply vote him or her out. We can have a change of leadership without a civil war, without an uprising. We we don't have to overthrow their army and lock them up. We just vote for the other leader. Democracy is an excellent uh, system for getting rid of leaders. Uh, Winston Churchill famously said, democracy is the worst form of government except all the others that have been tried. We have such a low expectation of leaders. And yet, at the same time, and this is inconsistent, we expect a lot of our leaders. Uh, we know what an ideal leader could do, what an ideal leader could be, and we expect them to be that, to, to lead well. We have this, this hope that they will be that leader. You notice that when there's a change in leadership, there's a, there's an excitement and a, and a hope that that things will go well. This leader will do better, a better job than the last one. And, but then over time, our, our hopes, our expectations become more realistic. We, we see their failures. We are critical of them. And so we get rid of them and try someone different. Now, perhaps we've seen a little bit of this in this past fortnight. Questions have been raised around, around the integrity of our previous premier, Gladys Berejiklian, and so she steps down. And then there's the appointment of Dominic Perrottet. And there's a bit of excitement about around him. I mean, he's a professed Christian with a, a track record of standing up uh, for issues that, that are important to many of us. And there's some excitement about what he will bring to the leadership of the state. But then others are more critical. And over time, he, like all leaders, will no doubt disappoint in one way or another and will move on to someone else. Our criticism of leaders, our cynicism of leaders, well, it's perhaps it's, it's because we we're all too used to the failure of leaders. And so we have this mixture of high expectations and low expectations of our leaders. Well, with that in mind, we come to 1 Samuel chapter 2, where we see the failure of the leadership of God's people in Israel. What's going to happen? Will these leaders get stood down? Perhaps someone else will be elected. What does God do about this failure of leadership? And what does this show us? Well, the leaders in question are Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. We were introduced to Hophni and Phinehas back in chapter 1, verse 3, where it says that uh, Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Nothing more is said about them until here in chapter 2, verse 12, where it says Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, scoundrels is a a, uh, colourful but but loose translation. Literally, it says the sons of Eli were sons of wickedness or worthlessness. They were were good for nothings. It's a very strong word. Interestingly, the same phrase is used back in chapter 1, where Hannah is accused by Eli of being drunk. But she says, 1 verse 16, do not take your servant for a wicked woman literally for a daughter of wickedness, worthlessness. It's the same word. And a contrast, I think, is is drawn here between Hannah, who is not a daughter of wickedness, and the sons of Eli, who are sons of wickedness or worthlessness, which also points a finger at Eli. His sons are sons of worthlessness. What does that say about him? The second thing it says about these two leaders, these sons of Eli, is that they had no regard for the Lord. Literally, they did not know the Lord. Uh, now, this doesn't mean that they were ignorant of him. They're like the, like Pharaoh back in Egypt in the time of Moses, says in Exodus 5 verse 2. Next slide there, James. It says... Uh, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that, they, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So Pharaoh said, I do not know the Lord. Now, it's not that, um, that he didn't know about the Lord. It's that he chose, as Eli's sons here do, chose to deny him. They don't want to know him. They have no regard for the Lord. Now, what is it that they're doing? Well, they're abusing their power and they're serving their own interests. As priests, they uh, were entitled to receive some of the food uh, from the sacrifices that people brought to the temple, but they were abusing that privilege and taking it way too far. So I'll read uh, again from verse 13. It says, Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. It's kind of this this picture of this gluttonous feeding frenzy. He's plunging the fork into whatever he can can find and, and everything that the fork brings up, he would take literally, it says, into himself. Kind of reminds me of, uh, of the cookie monster from, on Sesame Street, you know, stuffing food into his mouth, this, this gluttonous feeding frenzy. But it doesn't stop there. They go further. It, it seems that they're quite partial to roast meat. They prefer it to boiled meat. That's understandable. And so they take the meat from the people even before they've had a chance to offer it up as a sacrifice. They, they deny the people part of their sacrifice. And they do it under the threat of violence. Add to this wickedness, we discover down in verse 22 that they were sleeping with the women who served at the tent of meeting. This is shocking. We ought to be shocked by this. Now, perhaps we don't feel the, the weight of this because we're all too used to leaders behaving badly, even religious leaders behaving badly. But we should, we should realise what's going on here. I mean, this is Israel. This is God's chosen nation who, he says in Exodus 19, verse 5, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are God's people. This is Shiloh, the place for the time being that was chosen for God's place of worship. And these are the priests chosen and set apart to be holy. They're meant to be mediated between God and the people. We should feel the shock of this this is scandalous this is a disaster so what does Eli do he's their father verse 22 we read now Eli who was very old heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting so he said to them why do you do such things I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours no, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. Eli's response is, well, it's disapproving, but it's, it's pretty weak. mean, the most he says is, no, my sons, it's, it's not a good report that I hear. He should have ripped into them. He should have sacked them on the spot. He should have demanded their repentance. Eli is presented here as a, as a passive figure who is, who is weak and slowly fading away. Despite Eli's protests, his sons, well, they're unmoved. End of verse 25 says, His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. They don't listen to their father, which is really no surprise because more than being sons of Eli, they were sons of wickedness, and wickedness is the father that they are listening to. What does God do? On the end of verse 25, adds these chilling words. For it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now, we may not like this, but God had decided what would happen to them. It was too late for repentance. He brought judgment on them and he gave them over to their own contempt for him. In the words of Romans 1, he gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Now, we mustn't think that, that, well, this somehow puts the blame for their hardness of heart on God. I mean, th- They had already made their decision to have no regard for the Lord. Like Pharaoh back in Egypt, he, who's described as hardening his own heart, but then it also says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Both are true. Their hardness of heart was both their own choice and God's judgment on them for that choice. So God is going to put them to death. And then in verse 27 through to 36, we read this, this prophecy of this man of God that, uh, that Eli receives, and, and it says just that, that God will bring judgment on Eli and his family. And notice Eli is condemned along with his sons. Verse 29, it says there, are, Why do you, Eli, scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor my, your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by the people of Israel. Eli allowed his sons to carry on in their sin rather than stop them. And Eli failed to honour God. This is sobering stuff. The Lord is God. As Hannah prayed earlier in chapter chapter 2, verse 2, says then, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. Or in verse 3, for the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. God is the God who knows all. And so he weighs or judges all deeds. If you go the way of Hophni and Phinehas and have no regard for the Lord, then God will call you to account one day. So God is going to bring judgment on Eli and his family. But what about Israel? I mean, things have got pretty bad. There's there's corruption, there's greed, there's sexual immorality in God's tent of meeting. Will will God just put them to death and abandon Israel? No. In amongst this, this disaster, God is doing something good. At the end of pronouncing judgment on Eli and his family, God says in 2 verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. There's hope. God will raise up a faithful priest. Interspersed throughout this account of Hophni, Phinehas and Eli is Samuel. And Samuel is presented as a, as a contrast them. And so in verse 17, you see this: the, it says, The sin of the young men was very great, Hophni and Phineas, very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. By the way, the, the ephod was a garment that the priest was supposed to wear, and Samuel certainly looked the part. Five times in this passage, Samuel is presented as a contrast to the sons of Eli. Samuel is doing what a priest should do. And so verse 11 says the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Verse 18, we just read that Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Verse 21, meanwhile the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and with people. And 3 verse 1, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. So Samuel is presented in stark contrast to these sons of Eli. God is doing something good with the boy Samuel. And we might think, well, is this God's solution to the problem of Israel? Get rid of Eli, get rid of his sons, bring in a new leader, Samuel. Is that God's solution? Yes and no. Chapter 3 introduces another problem. Not just the state of the leadership, although it's related to that. The problem there is in 3 verse 1, in those days, The word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. The word of the Lord was rare. God was silent. Is this our lot today? Corrupt leadership, silence from God? Is God sitting back at a distance with his arms folded, just kind of watching on? That's the picture that people often have of God, that God is watching us from a distance. Is God silent? Well, in those days, he, well, he was, or at least mostly, which was probably a reflection of the state of Israel as part of his judgment upon them. Um, Interestingly, Amos chapter 8 captured a similar idea later in Israel's history. It says, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or, or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. To to face a famine of the word of the Lord is terrible. This is the second problem that Israel faced, though without a good leader and without God's word. God is going to do something. So does he raise up a great leader with particular gifts and strengths and organisational abilities, an inspiring person who can rally the troops back to God? Well, no, not exactly. Look at what he does. He, he calls this boy Samuel and speaks to him. The scene is, is set late one night. And a lot of the detail in this account is, is uh, is, is symbolic of what's going on in Israel. So we've got uh, we've got Eli, who we're already told was very old in 2 verse 12, and his eyes, verse 2, were becoming so weak that he could barely see. This comes just after mentioning that there were not many visions. Got Eli's physical condition is matching Israel's spiritual condition. Next, we're told that he was lying down. Again, Eli is, is this passive figure throughout the Throughout the account, he's aging and fading away. Uh, He's lying down in his usual place. Fair enough, it's nighttime, he's allowed to be in his bed. But it's a little detail that's included that's in contrast to Samuel, who we're told next was lying down in the house of the Lord, where it emphasizes where the ark of God was, the ark which contained God's law, his word, and represented his presence with his people. This is where Samuel is. Another little detail that's included there is that the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Uh, Eli's eyes were dim. There was not many visions. The word of the Lord was rare, but the lamp of God was still burning. God is still faithful to his people. And so God calls Samuel. Samuel runs to Eli. Notice his response is immediate and fast. He runs to to Eli, thinking that he's called him. Eli says, no, go back to bed. And and this happens three times before Eli realizes what's happening, tells Samuel next time, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, which Samuel does. And there's a little int- interesting little comment amongst this in verse 7, where it says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. These are almost exactly the same words as what it says about Eli's sons, back in 2 verse 12, remember literally it says there, they did not know the Lord. And here Samuel it says, what's the difference? Did not yet know the Lord. That that one little word, yet, shows that that Samuel and Eli's sons are worlds apart. Samuel has has already been ministering before the Lord, growing in stature, growing in favour with the Lord, but he doesn't yet fully know the Lord. Why? Because the word of the Lord Has not yet been revealed to him. The way to know God is through God revealing Himself through His Word. The same is true for us. The way that we know God is through God revealing Himself through His Word. As He reveals His Word to us, He reveals Himself to us. And so the Lord speaks to Samuel. And the message He speaks is a message of judgment upon Eli and his family. He is about to carry out against Eli all that he said he would. And from this point on, God then continued to speak his word to Samuel and through Samuel speak to his people Israel. This is God's solution to Israel's problem. They're without a good leader, but God's solution is not so much about the leader that he sends. No, his solution is that he sends his word. The end of chapter 3 finishes the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word and Samuel's word came to all Israel. God had not abandoned his people. His word was was no longer rare. In his grace, he provided for his people and spoke to them through Samuel. Well, what do we learn from these chapters of 1 Samuel? Two things I want to draw to our attention. Firstly, a warning, and secondly, an encouragement. Firstly, the warning is that that God is the Lord who judges. As Hannah prayed, the Lord is the God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The Lord knows and judges us all. So it matters how we respond to God. Hophni and Phinehas had no regard for the Lord, and God brought them to judgment. Eli's, sorry. Eli himself honoured his sons more than he honoured the Lord and God brought him to judgment. And that's right. So the reason that we're so critical of our leaders when they fail is, well, that we know that what they are doing is wrong. We know that justice ought to be done. The Lord is a God of justice. The Lord is the, is the God who judges. And there's a warning in that for us if we are disregarding the Lord. Now, I hope that, uh, that none of us are disregarding the Lord in this way. I mean, you're here listening to watching Church Online during a lockdown. I'm sure for most of you that you, you really actually want to be like, like Samuel, serving the Lord, growing in stature and favour with the Lord. But it's just possible that there are some watching this morning or whenever you're watching this who actually do not know the Lord. Maybe, maybe you have the outward appearance or maybe you don't. But the reality is that, well, you're walking through life disregarding the Lord, sidelining him, ignoring what he says. And if you're honest, you're living for yourself, for your gain, for your desires. I want to say if that's you, be warned. God is the God who knows. And if you continue like this, he will judge you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 As these sobering words, it says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. If you know about the Son of God and his sacrifice for you, his sacrifice for sin, and then walk away from that, ignore him, and deliberately keep on sinning, And I've got to warn you, you're you're facing the raging fire of God's judgment. You don't want to go there, so stop. Repent. Trust Jesus and his sacrifice for your sins and follow him as your leader, as your king. Now, I want to clarify, please hear me clearly, this passage in Hebrews 10 is is not talking about a Christian who slips up and and falls into sin. Uh, As Christians, we, we strive to not sin. But if we, if we fail, then, well, we keep coming back to Jesus. As, as 1 John 2 verse 1 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So if you're a Christian and if you've placed your trust in Jesus, in his death for you and you're living to, to follow him, don't be worried that, that you're going to be judged by God. We have, we have the righteous one, Jesus Christ, speaking To the Father in our defence, but if on the other hand, well, really you're doing a Hophni or a Phineas, setting off on your own path, not God's, then be warned. That's the warning. The second thing is the encouragement, and that is that these chapters show us that the Lord is the God who speaks; He's not silent. We we don't live in those desperate days where the word of the Lord was rare, or at least we need it. Because just as the Lord revealed himself to Samuel through his word, God has revealed himself to us, to the world, perfectly through his ultimate word, the Lord Jesus. John 1 says, The word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God's word, God's revelation to us. And Hebrews one verse one says, "In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. Jesus is God's ultimate word to us and to the world. And we meet Jesus, we hear God's word, we we come to know who God is as we read the Bible." God is the God who speaks. What an awesome privilege we have. And so the question is, are we listening? Are you reading the Bible? Are you making time to to read the Bible yourself, praying, asking God to teach you what he wants you to know? If you're not, can I encourage you to to start. And if you're wondering, well, how do I do do that? Where do I start? I, I, I suggest you read through 1 Samuel as we're working through it on Sundays or read the Psalms, or read one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They're great places to start and great places to keep coming back to. We have things so good. Perhaps that we have things too good such that we forget what a blessing and privilege we have, that we have God's word, that we can know him. We can be forgiven by him. We can walk with him day by day with the presence of his spirit with us. We can walk instructed by his word. What a blessing that the Lord has revealed himself to us through his word, through the leader he has provided, our Lord Jesus. God is the God who judges. Be warned. God is the God who speaks. Listen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that you are the God who judges that you are a God of justice, that you don't let things go unchecked forever and that you will bring us all to judgment. But Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace and that in Jesus you have provided the way for us to be forgiven for our sin. And Father, we thank you and praise you that you are the God who speaks, that you have spoken to us most perfectly In your word, the Lord Jesus, that we can get to know him as we read the Bible. Father, please help us to listen to you, to be shaped by you, to walk with you and to live to praise and honour you as our leader, as our king. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.